McNulty stunning for Emilio to get up above Cargill and find Bennett. It's into the box. McNulty cut back for Roberts. It's Gary Roberts no, from Bosby. are leading in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Mark McNulty, but a good chance by Doyle for McNulty on the edge. Mark McNulty oh, short yes. for Bosby. Smashes it past McCormack. One by Doyle. Finished by the returning Mark McNulty. First left blood for Bosby. They're in dreamland early here at Bratton. There's a through ball to Jamal Lowe. Jamal Lowe's onside. The flag stayed down. Jamal Lowe. Nonchalant. Fantastic. Brilliant. Pompey will be promoted at this rate. That is it. Pompey are champions. They won League Two in the most dramatic of circumstances. The PO4 podcast with Hugh Bunce. Proud to be Pompey. Hi, Pompey fans, and welcome to Pit Forecast, episode 208. Well, it's the start of 2024, and Pompey kick it off with a win. Join the podcast today is Andy Mitchmore. How are you, Andy? Hello, Bunce. Yeah, not too bad. Thank you, buddy. Yeah, nice to have a win at Fratton Park. Standard week. It's like a really weird fortnight, isn't it? Or a week and a bit just after Christmas. I have not known what day it is for just over a week. And uh, having to go back to work as of yesterday... It's just a bit of a shock to the system. I don't really know how many days we've got till the weekend. It went, it's, I'm assuming it's a Wednesday because we're recording, but it's a weird-ass time of year, isn't it? Yeah, it is a bit of a weird-ass time of year. But then you guys are actually, you know, we're recording the podcast on a Wednesday, you know, as we usually do. The darts are on. I know you wanted to watch it, and I decided to crack the whip and be like, nah, nah, we're recording right now. So... Maybe I can try and hold your attention with a second screen, but talking about somebody who moaned profusely about wanting to watch the darts is Freddie Webb. How are you, Fred? I am not so bad here. Yes, I did want to watch the darts, but I'm a professional and preps this show and I don't have the darts on a second screen. So we're going to do this properly and I'll catch up on the final afterwards, but it's been brilliant, the darts. Showing about Pompey's performances for most of Christmas and New Year. There was a lot of bad ones in there. I went to extra away and I've completely forgotten about that game. I erased it from my mind. But thankfully, the Stevenage game was much better. So that's all that matters. I think we do also need to highlight, well, Hugh is giving a bit of sass out about cracking the whip and making us record. I just wanted to congratulate Hugh for our first episode for two weeks. And I just highlight the significance of the moment that Hugh's alcohol blood content has dropped below what is actually scientifically supposed to kill an elephant. So, Hugh, how is the world now you cannot see everything in double vision and, you know, you're back to the real world. It must be a horrible shock to the system. How has your two-week bender been? Yeah, I mean, I know you guys have some sort of, like, hero sort of, like, view of me as some sort of, like, I don't know, drinking sort of prodigy. But I'll be honest, the two weeks I had off is are actually been quite calm, mate, to be honest. I actually had a whole week of being sober completely. I wasn't well for the first week at all. Then I drank for one or two days. And then for the next week, again, I was sober again until the weekend, um, which is up to New Year's, because I actually lost my voice and I've been sick. So Are we not are we not gonna comment on the days where you've messaged me at one pay, one PM telling me that you were still out? We're not going there. Are we going to claim that it's been a perfectly innocent Christmas New Year? No, I said it's been a few days in between that. But, you know, I've, do you know what? I could have probably done with two whole weeks off being completely sober. But unfortunately, mate, 0% gin just is not really my thing. So I've tried to go for it. And I'm going to apologise to the listeners now because I am 
still a little bit raspy after New Year's Eve. So I'm going to try and power through this properly. Hopefully it doesn't sound too bad and we'll go from there. Thank you for the jibe on the non-alcoholic gin, by the way. I would like to have you know I have matured and grown as a person and tonight I'm drinking Bovril instead because I am an old Good man. man. I love a Bovril. Oh, honestly, it, was only, it was only highlight of Exeter, to be honest. Stevenage at home was a Bovril day. My girlfriend and I were both stood there with our Bovrils, shivering. At least I enjoyed the football. She was more interested in what you know what's going on around us. But um, I asked her to send me a, re- a review of the game that we'll probably come on to later on. And her main take was how loud the guy to our left claps and uh, what a bad tackle it was on Christian Sadie. And she hopes he's okay. So uh, it was very... Awesome. <laughs> but yeah, Bob Real Life, boys. Nice. And um, Freddie, did you get any nice for Christmas? Uh, uh, there was a lot of bits of little different bits and bobs for Christmas. Nothing nothing major this year. I didn't really ask for that much. But the only thing that listeners will be interesting is a pop shield for the microphone. So it may sound slightly better or it will make no difference whatsoever. So we'll we'll find out, I suppose. The effort's there though, Fred. That's what people care about as well as the sound quality, I suppose. But the effort's there. That's what we like to hear about it. So do you know what? Let's kick off so Fred can go and watch the replay later on. But first of all, we're going to review the game against Stevenage. Following from that, we put a question out to you guys and we said, it's January, everyone. So what is Pompey's biggest need in the January transfer window? And then we spoke to Owen from the Robbins Report to preview everything you need to know about the game on Saturday against Cheltenham. And then, of course, our score predictions. I don't usually say that. I've just added that on the end. So there we go. Let's talk about it now. Fred, I thought about talking about Exeter as well. Which I didn't mention then. Obviously, you're at the game. It's kind of drab. Is there any comments you want to say before we move on to the Stevenage game? I think the main thing I'll say is it, it was similar to the previous two games where Pompey faltered. I think the big reason why they didn't create anything was just a lack of bravery in the wide areas. So many times, the wingers just cut back an awful lot. I thought Gavin White was the main culprit of that. Um, Will Norris's distribution wasn't its at its usual best in that game. It was very poor. A lot of shots hit out of the ground for throw-ins. Exeter didn't really pressure us that much. They're happy to sit back, but it's the fact that there was the lack of movement in the attacking areas that led to Pompey basically just having possession for the sake of it, rather than actually doing anything with it. And really, I thought Bishop didn't play very well in that game. Played excellently in the Stevenage game, which we'll go on to mention. But in the extra game, he wasn't with it at all. It was quite easy to defend against. And I think nil-nil was the perfect result in that game. It was the most one of the most nil-nil-ish games I've ever watched. It was drab at both sides. I know extra hit the post, but who cares? It wasn't that much of a clear-cut chance, I don't think. And yeah, thankfully, this this recent game was very different. It was just a shame I was working throughout it. Honestly, Fred, that Exeter game, I had it on iFollow because I'm not obviously not as dedicated a fan as you. I did not envy you and Rob that trip back. It looked, I don't know, I felt like I'd not used my evening in the best way possible having sat on the sofa and watched it, never mind having made the trip. So yeah, fair play to all the Pompey fans who did trek down to Exeter. You are... Uh, was it really worth it, Fred, with the power of hindsight? I, I enjoyed it as a day out. I, I, got, I got to see some friends, have some drinks, and uh, explore Crewkern, a place where I'd never been. Uh, there's not that much there, but it was still a quite nice town. It reminded me of Moulton up north. So I have been to Crewkern. 
about five months ago for work. So very nice place, isn't it? Little stone houses, very quaint. Even the even the station has like a sort of a garden like vibe to it, like flowers. They obviously have people to go and tend it. I think there's only like one line as well. So there's very little traffic in and out. And I'm guessing there's not much to do there. So people have enough time to go and turn the train station into their own private garden. But yeah, nice. I like Exeter. I used to live there as a kid. So got some fond memories of that as well. Let's get into the Stevenage game. People don't care about my childhood memories here. They want to hear about what we think about the actual game where Pompey turned a result into a win at Fratton Park. It was quite a bright start to the game, wasn't it, boys? There with Rafferty getting involved to Bishop, who sort of trademarked a few flicks in this game. But the first one of the game, he sort of flicks it through to Robertson. It's really nicely weighted, isn't it? And, and his header, unfortunately, there, Fred, is just sort of saved, isn't it, by the keeper? Yeah, Tay Ashby Hammond's a very good keeper, and he put in a decent save from that from that from that Robertson shot. And in that play alone, in the first half, we'll come into this probably in more detail due to the Bishop flack before this game. It showed that he can do more than score penalties. He's an excellent link-up player, and with Kamara and Lane beside him on the wings, they created a really good understanding. And the fact that Robertson, in the attacking midfield role, was able to move into those positions, which he didn't do, which well Terry Devlin didn't do it in the Exeter game, rather. Yeah, very good chance. For it was quite central for Robertson, so. Tayshby Hamburg made himself big, so it wasn't like a clear-cut chance or anything, but no. Good save, and it um, set Pompey off on the right foot, I thought. Yeah, just moving on to the the first goal here. I remember Jack saying in our little group chat how happy he was that we scored a goal off a high turnover from, from, from pressing, and it's good to get those results, isn't it, Andy? When you are a team who try and press from the front there, and, and if Paddy Lane does the work, he wins it, and then um, from there sort of turns it over to Robertson, who goes again to Lane. It's a nice finish, isn't it? On the other side of the wing, on the left-hand side, hits it into the bottom corner and it's 1-0. Yeah, I think it, is it Dan Sweeney, the Stevenage centre-back, who really should do better than he does there. Watching it live, wasn't 100% sure whether it was a nice connection from Lane or a bit of an ankle shank that went into the far corner. But having yeah, having watched it back, I think you have to say it was, uh, it was intentional and, yeah, good finish. I think coming back to sort of the flicks and tricks, this was the game where... It looked like Pompey were playing with the most freedom in their build-up play. It really felt like Messino had told them to go and kind of express themselves and almost enjoy it. And I mean, Kamara and Bishop on the right in particular, uh, they would just... It felt like we were watching FIFA Street a bit at times with mixed success, but to be honest with you, generally quite good levels of success, like more than you'd have thought, having seen what they were trying to pull off. And it just looked like they were playing with less pressure on their shoulders and just not being afraid to lose the ball, trying a little back flick. And there were some really quick, intricate passes of play, especially down that right-hand side in the first half, at least, where they just looked like they were enjoying themselves. And yeah, that late goal is, as you say, a high-position turnover or whatever the phrase is that Hancock likes throwing around. But Pompey are making a habit of that this season. We saw it a lot in the Northampton game and I can't remember the other game recently we talked about where it happened a lot. But when they execute that high press and turnover, it's ruthless a lot of the time. And yeah, it was this point of the game where they were executing that well. I think second half, I don't know if Fred's got the stats around, it felt like the second half it wasn't quite as successful. I didn't feel like we turned over possession as high as often, mostly because we weren't that high up the pitch as often for the last half an hour. But 
Yeah, nice finish. 1-0, well-deserved, I think, at that point. Hard to argue with it, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and we talked about the flicks and tricks, as you, I think you just said there, Andy, but Bishop, again, sort of turns provider, doesn't he, where he sort of plays the ball over the top to Kamara, who goes through. He's got Dan Butler to deal with. It's a little bit tricky. Doesn't manage to get the shot on target, one-on-one with the keeper, but I think Dan Butler does well to sort of try and shield him off nicely there at defence. Um, you know, I'm, I think that's just some good defending. What do you reckon, Fred? Yeah, I thought it was good defending as well because it seemed that Kamara sort of knocked off knocked off his stride a little bit. Obviously, he wanted it on his left foot and was um, essentially essentially just hit it wide, bit off balance when he actually formed himself to get the shot off. Lovely little through ball by Bishop and yeah, Kamara had three of these one on one chances in this game. I know Andy asked for the expected goals for Kamara for this game, 0.81 in total, with the biggest one being the first one. If in case you're wondering. And yeah, yeah it was I great think, that it was great that Kamara was getting half, I think I asked you at half time, Freddie, for Kamara. I wanted it at the end of the game because yeah. Had a very good game getting in dangerous positions, but the finishing just wasn't there. And I think yeah, so yeah. the size of those three chances, I think you've got to score one of them if we're being hypercritical. I think the clearest one, the first and the second one, are, are up there, I think. But the main thing and the main difference was the wingers were actually getting in these positions in this game. They were being very forward-focused. There was the running off the ball, which which in the extra game and of some previous games, it just wasn't there. So, so it was brilliant that that little, that little bad thing that Pompey had been going through for the past three games, that seemingly went away. The problem is you can't play Lane and Kamara every single game for the rest of the season out that out on the wings. The other wingers have to chip in with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get but get to that a little bit later on when we look at the question of what we should do in January, Fred. But Andy, what question for you here, mate? And that just stems from the fact that Robertson obviously came in and played in the midfield with Morel and Pack, and there was a lot of fans who were kept saying more recently they didn't think that was going to work. Now, I know we've been an advocate of you know trying to make that work in the centre. They're probably our three best midfielders, I think, down the middle. Do you think this game has changed people's opinions on whether that three can work and Alex Robertson playing in the 10? I mean, you're talking someone who, my, my personal opinion is that Robertson is better in the deep line role. However, we've got a bit of a, a gluttony of riches. It's a very good problem to have, having Morel, Pack and Robertson all ideally, in my mind, playing in that slightly deeper role in centre midfield. It was a more successful execution of Robertson playing higher up the pitch this time because of what Freddie just referred to about the wing, the wide players getting forward better. In a way, actually really improve, uh, improve things how well Rafferty played going forward. Um, I think I saw a heat map that showed that we went forward more on the left than on the right. However, when Rafferty did get forward, I thought he had a really good game attacking-wise and I think that gave Robertson an extra ball that maybe he hasn't had in the last couple of games as an option. You can put anyone at 10 and then if you isolate them, they're going to struggle. And I think Robertson, although you know, I don't think it's his best position playing at 10, I don't think he's been given the best opportunity to succeed there in the last few games where he has played at 10. Um, having said that, I do still like him at eight more, but you can't play with three eights, really, can you? Uh, unfortunately, football manager has taught me that you can't play with just three deep-lying centre midfielders if you want to actually do anything in a game other than bore everyone to tears. Uh, so... Yeah, I thought he had a good game, actually. He did a good job, as you just said, involved in the first goal. Uh, we'll obviously talk about him a bit more moving through the game. I think we've shown it can work. 
I think it works less against a team who are sitting back and playing defensively, like your Fleetwoods, like your Exeters. Although Exeter actually created some half-decent chances, to be fair. But I think it works better when you're playing against a team who are coming out here trying to score, which Stevenage, to their credit, did. They had a decent amount of attacking intent throughout. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that attacking intent there. Will Norris has quite a good save, doesn't he, from close range um, from Roberts after a sort of a header across the across the goal. And he puts a really strong hand on that. It should be quite easy just to let that slip through the level of power that comes at him. He gets a really good hand on that and he puts it over the bar. But then obviously we do let the goal in. It would be Louis Thompson, wouldn't it? Again, it comes from a cross. Kind of thing you expect from Stevenage as well. Ball goes into the box. It's a nice angle, but he does really well to head it back across Norris, you know, and put it in at the near post effectively. And Fred, have you got anything to say about that? I don't think there's much you can do about that, really, apart from maybe a defender trying to get goal side and get his head on it before Louis Thompson. I think it's more of a, a very good finish rather than a defensive error, that goal. I thought Louis Thompson definitely made the most up that chance, got his head on it flush, was able to get away from his defender and around it. It all started from a a direct pass and then a knockdown, which was Stevenage were definitely looking for. Um, going to Y-Scout, tw- over 20, just over 25% of their entire passes were long passes. So it wasn't just a stereotype. It was the fact that they were going direct a lot. And then the ball was played out ride really well. And it was a lovely cross. And Louis Thompson made it by quite an excellent run, getting it in some space. And yeah, no, no chance for Norris really. And yeah, brilliant goal against the runner play a little bit, but thankfully Pompey were able to bounce back from it properly. Yeah, and it's that combination again. Paddy Lane with the cross into the box to Bishop, the Lane-Bishop combination again, strikes, make a second goal. Nice ball into the box there. Colby Bishop gets across him. It's just an instinctual flick really, isn't it? Into the net. The kind of thing that a quality striker does when they know what they're doing. They know where the goal is and where they are positionally. Gets across it. Lovely flick. Goes into the, goes into the back of the net. And then obviously some of the fans were annoyed about the the celebration. I mean, I'll be honest in this in this sort of situation. I, can we stop piling on our own players in the first place when we're top of the league? Whether or not whether or not you think the celebration was justified or that malarkey, back Colby. We love all of Colby here. You just got to get to a stage where you think, why are our players feeling like that when we're basically top of the league? Yeah, exactly that. And I think I saw Jack wrote online something along the lines of, if you're annoyed by this celebration, you're probably one of the people it was aimed at, which I think is a fair comment. I mean, Bishop said himself, it's aimed at 5% of the fan base. And I think a large proportion of the people it's aimed at is part of that social media generation, isn't it? Everyone's got a voice. Everyone's got an equal ability to be heard online which has definite benefits in life, but also there are some uh, some issues with it as well. And like you say, why? what's wrong with just getting behind the players? We seem to be living in a, a world now, and this isn't just Pompey, this is all fan bases in football, where everything's so dichotomous. You know, you're either terrible or you're amazing. It was either incredible or it was a disaster. And there is so much grey in between those two places. And, I mean, anyone who just says Bishop scores penalties and nothing else, I can only presume just looks at 
the scores on BBC and then maybe watches the two-minute highlights rather than actually seeing the games because that is so clearly untrue. It's it's ridiculous. But there's just this culture of everything being either extreme one way or extreme the other. And when something good or bad happens, rather than supporting a side through it, and again, this is not just Pompey, there's always... Uh, seems to be like a, a desire for some sort of dispute online. Like, so if something good happens, the first comments you see a lot of the time are, "Oh, where are those boo boys now?" Then, like, trying to get a like, a, "Oh, you other fans suck." And then when something bad happens, it's the people going, "Oh, where are you happy clappers now?" Then it's like, "Wait, well, if we can see, let's just say, okay, this is what went wrong. Move on, fix it. If we score, great. Let's all be happy." your first response doesn't have to be trying to call out other people or call out players. Like, we're playing in a very competitive football league here. Like, sometimes things are going to go against you. Not being too high, not being too low, and, yeah, not slating our own players when we're top of the bloody league. Like, it's so frustrating to see as a... I mean, we're reasonably moderate, middle-of-the-road fans, I'd say. We don't get too high, we don't get too low. And it's frustrating to see because... To a certain extent, you do feel like you're getting lumped in with, you know, some other individuals who are just going so over the top with their critique. You know, they're not going to play brilliantly every match. They're people who are playing intense 90-minute matches, you know, four times in two weeks over the Christmas period. Like, there's going to be fatigue in there. And I think in the second half, I heard some people moaning about how we were on the back foot, etc., protecting the lead. Pompey have played 90 minutes extra football in the last week than Stevenage. Their game against Cambridge was called off because of an electrical failure. They didn't play on, was it Boxing Day, their game, or whatever it was, the, the Cambridge game. They had 90 minutes less time in their legs. So let's just chill out and enjoy the ride rather than, as you say, laying in onto a player for not having a brilliant game. It's, it's far bigger than Pompey. This is like football as a whole, and it's the social media generation and the social media usage as a whole. And uh, I found it extremely frustrating. And I do find it frustrating seeing people's first responses to be trying to call out other fans at full time when we win a game top of the league. Oh, that's going to keep the boo boys quiet for a while. Just enjoy the fact we're top of the league without trying to be antagonistic. And it's the same for our players. You know, if Bishop doesn't have a good game, like he should have scored in that Exeter game. He missed two really good chances with his head. That's going to happen. Support him. Get like... He's, good. He's one of the most dangerous strikers in the division by a distance. We can't afford to make him want to leave in a transfer window. I would suggest that you want to make your players feel welcome two days into a transfer window where they probably will have options to move to the lower, lower end of the championship. There's going to be interest in the top scorers in League One. Maybe we make him feel like we want him to be here. Is that a crazy thought? To bring it back to Pompey a little bit specifically... I think a lot of the overreaction came from the fact of the drop points over Christmas and it's looking at it, oh God, Pompey dropped points at Christmas again and the lead at the top of the table drops all the way down to a couple of points rather than a bigger cushion than it already is. Oh God, Pompey dropping off again, it's happening again, that type of thing. And the criticism of Bishop that I saw wasn't just on social media, I was at a New Year's Eve party, and one guy said after a few beers that he could defend against Colby Bishop. I'd love to see that now. <laughs> I'd love to see him on that pitch. But no, it, it, it's a strange one, and there is a lot of angst there 
from Pompey Sports specifically, and that's built up over the seven years that Pompey have been in this division. And it's the fact that a lot of the supporters can't trust the fact that this team is good. And whenever they go on a little blip, which we have done, and those performances were poor, we're, we're not ignoring that at all. And there are a lot of poor individual performances in those games as well. And I hope that the listeners think we can be objective on this pod. And when something is terrible, we say it's terrible. But if something is good, we say it's good. And that's we hope to stay down that li- that middle a lot of the time and cut through all the very, very emotive stuff, the stuff that can be a bit mental at times. But I think genuinely the people who are annoyed at the Bishop celebration are, are the similar people who say footballers don't have passion anymore or don't have a backbone anymore. For a player to come out and say effectively, describe the celebration, I've got his quotes in front of me. Bishop said in the news and to Andrew Moon, both compared. He said, people seem to get strikers sometimes go through patches when they don't score. I always back myself to get back on the wagon. I didn't celebrate. Everyone can read into that what they like. I don't think anyone likes being criticised. Sometimes my performances might not be good, but I've always given 100%. Since they had a put on the Pompey shirt, I've always given 100%. And I always will while I'm here. All I can do is do my talking on the pitch. And I think I did that. The criticism hurts, but I try not to let it affect me. And then beforehand, he effectively said that he wasn't scrolling through social media looking at it. It was, as with a lot of athletes, it was concerned teammates, family, friends, anybody around him who told him about that sort of stuff. And I'm not surprised about the celebration. And I, I think that shows a lot of bottle that he actually did it rather than just ignoring it and yeah Bishop was poor against Exeter but was arguably the best player probably player on the pitch in this Stevenage game arguably I think Paddy Lane could be a bit up there but the point being is he's come back from the injury and he's now on course and will probably get at least 20 goals in this division which any good striker this level does could arguably get 25 and we can continue from there I never got the Bishop or Yengi argument. I think it's the fact that people look at the starting 11 and they get, you know, very confused about it when it's a squad game and players with different attributes can be used in different scenarios. And it doesn't matter that one player sometimes is getting played, getting preference over the other when it's obvious that Bishop is the main striker, Yengi is behind him. And that's about it. We've only got two proper strikers. It's not as deep and I know the margins are thin in this division and I know that potentially a small division like that can be a difference between Pompey getting promoted or not but come on guys don't overthink it don't don't look at your previous 20 plus goal season striker as rubbish even with the huge track record just you know chill out a tad but Fred you're saying about the you know we've been burned before we've been in the division seven years etc there's a a, a bit of a track record of us falling off after Christmas, et cetera, et cetera, five years ago. How many of this squad were there five years ago? Ragget? I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just I'm saying not, that's, I know, that's I know. I'm just, I'm why. playing devil's advocate and, and sort of, you know, going against that. I, I know it's not your personal view, but how many of those players were here five years ago? Was Messino here five years ago? No, he was, he was playing centre-back for Oxford United at that point, you know? This isn't, a squad with a track record of failure. And I think towards the end of the Kenny Jacket time at Pompey and 
to be honest with you, for a decent amount of time under the Cowley reign as well. We had a squad who had too many experiences of, if, we aren't, if we're being honest, a track record of failure at the end of the season. And this squad doesn't have that. So we don't want to project that onto the squad because I don't want to sound too Michael Appleton here after he got slated for blaming the Charlton crowd at the weekend for making the players nervous. But you can feel when Fratton is nervous, can't you? It is... It's in the air. Like when the Fratton, well, when to be fair, when all the stands are nervous towards the end of the game, or you, it's like an actual physical atmosphere in the ground. And sometimes that's going to happen completely fine, completely normal. You're a goal up with 10 minutes to go, you know, with playoffs on the line or automatics on the line. It's terrifying. I hate it. It's a horrible feeling, the nerves. But it, that, you know, projecting that onto a group of players on social media, et cetera, who haven't got a track record of failure. I just don't think it's helpful at all. There's there's no reason, no good reason for us to think that this squad are going to drop off before the end of the season. There's no evidence for that. They've, they've not done it in the past to most of these players. And I don't know, I find it a, a little bit frustrating, as you can probably tell. Yeah, no, I agree with both your points pretty much there. But I was going to move us on quickly to get through this game. And, you know, we started the second half pretty well in some ways. There's lots of pressure going forward. Kamara gets another chance as well after a slip by one of the defenders. Goes through again on goal. Manages to get that one on target. It's a decent save there from the keeper. He gets his leg to it, I think, in this one as well. And then it just sort of, you know, the last 20 minutes or so, it was very much, you know, sitting deep in that and, it's nice to see us come out first a bit bigger and, you know, when you're the team who's lacking a little bit of fitness again, who's played twice in that amount of time, it's, you're always going to die off, aren't you? And eventually we manage to stay on and, and hold on to the lead. I think there's one chance from Nick Freeman who runs down the right-hand side. Header at the near post there from Jaden Reed. That ends up going wide. I think some of the Stevenish fans thought that was in as well. I think Jamie Reed thought he should have a penalty as well later on in this game where it was shot basically at Sean Asive, really, hit his arm. I can't believe that Evans, Steve Evans, is annoyed as he was about it. That is never a penalty oh, in a I million Steve, years. I have Steve Evans's quotes in full, if you want to hear them. They are I hilarious. I think we should, Fred, for the, for the enjoyment <laughs> of it. Yeah, why not? Oh, well, yeah, it wasn't a penalty uh, for that handball. The Marlon Pack tackle when he was on a booking arguable I think it was a, it was a strong challenge when he was already on a booking and, and considering some of the red cards you've seen in this division this season if he gets the second yellow you might think well it's referee's discretion rather than a you know a genuine error but I have his I, quotes in full Fred I thought on on the yellow I think Pax I think it was his first yellow I thought was a bit harsh second one I don't think I'd have complained more than I biasedly would have in the ground at the time. I think with a couple of hours and an action replay, I think I would have accepted that as a second yellow. So we slightly got away with one there. That's the only thing that Evan said that I think was really a fair comment. So yeah, please do crack on. Yeah. Well, the first thing <laughs> Steve Evans said is, apparently he said to Alex Crook at TalkSport that the Pompey Press said Stevenage performance was the best they'd seen from an opposition at Fratton Park for a long time. And none of them said that whatsoever. So that's a lovely start. That's a lovely little tidbit. His quotes in full, he described referee Charles Breakspeare as rubbish and pathetic. He added, my thoughts on the game were Pompey were better than us in the first half. We gave them a helping hand with two mistakes from our central defender, giving them two goals. You see how bold we were in the second half. I changed it and they did not have a clue. They did not have a clue, apparently. 
It was one-way domination, apart from the odd counter-attack in the second half. We had a couple of chances, and Jamie Reid should score two. Then we have a penalty kick not given, and it's bewildering. Absolutely bewildering, apparently. There was only one team in the second half who deserved to win the game, and we go away pointless. I expected to win. If you look at the context of the game, there was one team that certainly should have had a point, if not three, Stevenage. He added afterwards that Marlon Pack should have been given another booking and described Breaksby's decision as disgraceful for not giving it. He added, I'm not questioning his integrity. I'm just saying he's rubbish. That's just my opinion. And I'm allowed to have that opinion. If the referee, if the referees phone me up tomorrow, uh, I'll still say he's rubbish. He's a rubbish referee. That wasn't in full, but those are the main bits all blocked up. So yeah, uh, considering this, we keep this podcast fairly PG. I'm not going to, say much on Steve Evans's opinions there. I just think he was on another planet for most of it, to be honest. I will. <laughs> no, we will keep it PG. He said there's only one team. He said there's only one team on the park in the second half. There was only one team on the park on the 29th of December when we were playing three days before. And I just looked, it was three days before their game was postponed and ours wasn't. So yeah, there was only one team on the park that evening as well. His comments about the referee... As I've already said, the second pack yellow, arguable. Other than that, not really sure what the referee did wrong. The referee actually had the stones to go and tell the Stevenage bench to stop being pathetic multiple times during the game. So telling Steve Evans to sit down on the odd occasion, he did stand up to wave his arms around. He, yeah, the referee, What I don't really understand what he's supposed to have done wrong. The, the handball wasn't a handball categorically was not a handball. And the referee was consistent with his application of the law. There was another one later in the game. can't remember if it was in our defensive box or outside our box, but there was a, a, a Stevenage hand in exactly the same position. Didn't give a free kick for it. No dramas at all. He's consistent. He's applied the law consistently great. And I, I'm a bit at a loss as to what the referee did wrong, if I'm honest with you. And uh, I'm genuinely surprised that he didn't try and argue that Nathan Thompson wasn't a red card. I'm, that wouldn't have actually surprised me. It just makes me grateful to have Messino because Steve Evans is uh, not not on any sort of personal level, but on the way that he approaches management, the way that after they win every game, that running at the fans and doing the repeated fist bump, by the way, Paddy Lane taking the piss out of that was fantastic. Actually, I did physically get a needle and inject it into my forearm. It was wonderful. But um, yeah, doing that running thing to the fans after every win, having an absolute meltdown in an interview whenever you lose, oh, it's just it's just so stressful. Whereas Massino, you know, looking at him physically before and after a, a, a game or after a win or a loss, you wouldn't necessarily know whether we'd won. It just makes me glad that we've got who we have, to be honest with you. And makes me want to pile praise on the Pompey hierarchy for for hiring someone like that after the Cowleys had gone when most of the fan base was just going, what is the going on here? Like, who is this? Whether or not we get promoted, on like a people-person level, they damn well made the right decision, didn't they? Uh, should we talk about the, uh, the Nathan Thompson incident? The Nathan Thompson thing is a, is a red. It's assault, effectively. It is basically complete assault. He, his foot is so high, makes connection with Mercedes' face. It's a red card. I don't really know what else there is to talk about, really, apart from the fact that it's it's a blatant red. 
you know, and that's it, really. It's, yeah, it's a horror tackle, isn't it? Really, I'm. I was. I'm surprised to see it a little bit from Nathan Thompson. We know he's a bit of a. What's the polite word for it? You know, does the Thompson flop and all of that stuff? When Louis Thompson broke his leg, it was under when playing for Pompey against Bristol Rovers. It was under a horrible, unpleasant, dirty Joey Barton. Bristol Rovers side and he just told them to prepare for war at Fratton Park and then they broke Louis Thompson's leg and he was out for goodness knows how long like Nathan Thompson would have been aware of all of that going on so it's surprising to me to see him buy so much into such an unpleasant dirty way of playing as was demonstrated by that when he's seen up close and personal the consequences of playing like that under a manager who wants you to play like that so i was a bit confused by the inconsistency there into his lived experience versus what he's actually doing on the pitch now. But um, yeah, I mean, they've got to increase the ban on that, surely. There's a difference between being a little bit aggrieved that you've been done for a high foot when the other person's bent their head down to actually karate kicking someone in the face. And watching it live, I mean, it's the first time since, probably since Drew Talbot knocked out Matt Clark midair that I've literally turned away from the game because the actual impact was so sickening. Like it looked like he was just flat out, like unconscious. At first viewing, it looked like he was unconscious before he hit the ground. Uh, the same way that you know, when when Matt Clark got headbutted by Drew Talbot, you could see he was, you know, with the fairies before he'd even hit the turf. So, yeah, just glad uh, glad to say he's all right. Really, um, saw somewhere someone said online that they'd spoken to him after the game or seen him after the game, and it looked like he'd got a couple of stitches, but he was all right. But uh, yeah, hope he has a quick recovery from that because it was dirty and I hope Nathan Thompson has the book thrown at him, to be honest with you. Yeah, let's uh, wish Sadie the best. Hope he recovers. I'm sure he'll be fine. And from there, yeah, it's just going to be a standard ban, isn't it? I don't think he's going to get anything done any further than that, but is what it is, I suppose. It was a horrible challenge and yeah. Anyway, probably get the three points, move on, uh, which leads us with 53 points first in the league. Bolton do have a game in hand behind us now, 24 games played, 51 points. Obviously, they're on a four-game unbeaten run. Then you've got Peterborough, 49 points, and Derby coming up the rear with 46 points uh, with a game in hand as well. Okay, let's get going. We put a question out to you guys, and we said... What is Pompey's biggest need in January? And thanks to everyone that messaged in. We really appreciate it. It makes the show. George Slatcher messages in. He says, we need a pacey winger. Somebody who can get in behind defences when teams press us and tire towards the 60th minute. So, if we brought on someone super quick, I think it will help us with our promotion push. Defo, a championship centre-back, Edmondson would be perfect, and a goalkeeper for me. Edmondson's a bit of a strange one, really, from Ipswich, because he's now come in and played the last game, I believe, as well. Cameron Burgess has also joined uh, Cassini Yangi on duty with the Socceroos of Australia. So he's basically filled in now at centre-back and started for them in the last game. I'm not sure if that's good news for us trying to sign their centre-back as such. Now he's get, playing championship games. I suppose it's a possibility that he... They go out and sign a centre-back or two. It's Ipswich in January, but I've got a feeling they're just going to stick with him and, and not sell him on. I don't know what you think about that, Fred. Yeah, well, considering that they're going for promotion push to the Premier League, if I was Kieran McKellar, I'd want every asset I'd have. And why would you 
sell him. It's clear that he's a championship standard centre-half. He's played at that level before. Stepped in recently, as you said, with Cameron Burgess gone and played really well. So I know that fans might get a bit upset if we don't get George Edmondson, but that is the type of centre-half that we need, I think. Someone who's comfortable on the ball on his right foot, can bring it out slightly, has very strong positional sense alongside a centre-half partner, and that's fairly reliable. I think that uh, George Edmondson is the sort of centre-half that we need. So even if we don't get him, if we get someone of a similar mould who can either be behind Sean Raggett or take his place, I only say Sean Raggett there because Connor Shotnessy has arguably been one of the signings of the season and is not getting out of that left-sided centre-half spot at all. And yeah, it's the main priority for the club, I think, because with only three centre-halves, an injury doesn't give a lot of wiggle room with squad depth. So no, if it's not... George Edmondson would obviously be brilliant, but if it's not him, someone in a similar mould. And there are other spots in the squad which may need filling. I don't think going for a sub-keeper's a big thing for two reasons. A, you know, I don't think you're going to get rid of Ryan Schofield at all. Even if you want, even if you want the sub-keeper, you're not going to replace his wages, I don't think. And B, which keepers are going to come in either on a loan or a permanent and then accept being behind Will Norris? Because obviously you're not going to replace Will Norris, are you? I know he had one bad game, but come on. It happens. I think Pompey will look at other positions, I think. I know Messina previously said in the news that he wasn't looking at a winger, but I think that is a need considering that White has been bereft of confidence and ability since he joined largely and Scully has not been at it due to the injury and Josh Martin's been okay. It just depends if Messina wants to extend him or not because, as we said earlier, you can't ride Paddy Lane and Abu Kamara all the way because they'll just burn out, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think it's Will Norris or Bust with the goalkeeping position. I, I don't think, we, as, as we said on previous podcasts as well, Fred, when we discussed it ourselves, I don't see that happening, unfortunately. So let's just hope, really, that Norris stays fit. I don't think you're going to get anyone much better in, really, unless you just went for a young keeper and hoped he's any better. When Norris went down for a couple of minutes towards the end of the game, he got clad in the air from a free kick. There was a general feeling of unease, let's say, <laughs> just before, uh, yeah. Just probably uh, thankfully got up again and played on. Obviously, we want to, yeah, we want to back Schofield, and um, he has shown ability. Obviously, had that one uh, one game in the in the cup that things just didn't go his way. But uh, you'd like to think it's only going to take one good performance to get his confidence back. But he is definitely. I mean, anyone would after that game be low confidence right now. Sean messages in, and he says. Someone electric on the wings to frighten defences once Paddy Lane and Abu tire them. A right side of centre-back, possibly a right-back if Zach is out long. Just a quick question here, because I think it was mentioned in the news that Zach Swanson's probably going to be out until March, which is pretty much the majority of the season, let's be honest now. So what do we need, really, at right-back? Do we need to go and get someone else in? Because if Rafferty's out then, you know, what are we going to do at right-back? Yeah, there's going to be no options there, is there? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like was mentioned in the news, Zach Swanson's out because he's getting surgery on a groin issue and will be out for up to eight weeks, so February, March time. He's expected to be back apparently a similar time as Tino Andrewin. So when his hamstring heals after he tore it in that game, I'm trying to remember which game it was, but, uh, it, the Chesterfield game. Chesterfield. I remember yeah. now. 
it looks as if we might need right back cover because obviously with a lack of under 23 side that's pure forecast bingo for you we don't have really a, a young right back who can come in behind Rafferty it might be a case of going to the loan market simply because you'd want the wages to go elsewhere and you would assume that Rafferty would start left back you don't have, have that issue because Conor Ogilvy's coming back soon and he can also play centre half as well so yeah I think right back might actually be on the list if since Swanson's out long term and by mid-March it will be April by the time he's up to shape and then that's nearly enough the season done so I think arguably the three spots to go for are right side of centre back first option a winger who could play up front as well because Yengi isn't Yengi's going to be at the Asian Cup for a bit so you need cover as a striker as well and you need a backup right back and I think if Pompey do all those things and if they're able to sell Denver Hume because he wants to lead to get first team football I think that'll be a reasonable January Andy, I believe Hadji Minoga is going to be on international duty. Yeah, he's gone to AFCON. Of Nations. Yeah. yeah, I was going to wear my Tanzania top tonight. I forgot. But uh, yeah, I hope things go well for him at AFCON. You know that that's your job. You know that's your job as well, right? As the international correspondent to have updated us on that news. So when you oh, mentioned I will be, name, thankfully, Af- Africa as a continent, the time zone's not too bad, is it? Uh, so it's only what? South Africa's two hours ahead, isn't it? So I'll be able to watch all the games and uh, and report back the the Australia games and the other tournament are probably going to break my sleep a little bit more. Well, I know the listeners are looking forward to hearing your your play-by-play breakdown of every single game in involving the player. Yeah. In depth, you know it. <laughs> Josh Lishmeth is in and he says, biggest need, question mark. If you're wondering why that sounds weird in phrasing, blame Freddie Webb. He he uh, phrased the question. So it was, it was a bit American, unfortunately. I'm sorry for that. No worries, Cherno. Then he writes on and says afterwards, he says, number one, a right-sided central defender who can also do a job at right-back. Let's stop there then. Do we not need to worry about necessarily getting a separate right-back and just get someone who can fill in at right-back? Or are we then going to the that weird situation we had before last season where we're just pl- sort of playing centre-backs at left-back and right-back and it sort of limits our ability to get forwards? Do you think they're more likely to almost fill in, I know, another wide player in that position if that happens? No, we need... If we're looking at that position, you don't want a sort of jack-of-all-trades master of none for me. Looking at the system that Pompey play and how important attacking-wise Sparks and Rafferty are when they're able to get forward, they're two of our biggest threats in terms of delivery into the box. And like I said, Rafferty was linking up really nicely in an attack in attacking positions in that Stevenage game. And we're blunting our own threat if uh, if we don't play to our strengths if we are strengthening that part of uh, of the pitch. Josh carries on and he says, a centre forward allowing Sadie to develop as a 10 and cover Yengi's absence. I think we all agree that Sadie's better deployed as a 10 than, than up front. I mean, his finishing doesn't really fill me with confidence. He brings a lot of other things to the game. Bringing players into play, we've gone over it, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much, but I think we're going to have to get a centre forward. Um, Freddie, who do you think we should be going to get? Now, you can name players if you want to by name, but I'm also thinking of the sort of style of player, whether it should be a lone player, whether we should be like, you know, looking down the leagues or, I mean, there's always been talk online. There's always too much talk, isn't there, at this side? And I know Oxford have been looking at, apparently looking at Jake Young or whoever who's on loan at, loan at Swindon from Bradford. He's been recalled. So 
people are just putting two and two together. Obviously, he has the Forest Green link there with Rich Hughes. I know he, I don't know if he started his career there, but he's definitely there very early on. I don't even know if Rich Hughes was there at the time, but you know, 16 goals, four assists, 25% conversion rate. Is that the sort of player at 22 years old you want to bring in, a young striker? And do you think you know we should be investing that sort of money? I mean, I do like Jake Young. I've seen him play a little bit in League Two, and he's a very good striker. I think the big thing for me, and I'm thinking back to what Gabe Sutton said last year with the transfer special, similar thoughts applies, but in a different situation. He basically said that really in January, why would you bring in somebody if it's like a long-term deal like this, who you don't see playing in a division higher up? And I think this season, that thought is more relevant. If, for example, you do sign Jake Young, and if he's the third striker, do you see him getting minutes in the championship? If the answer is no, then you spent money on a player, you're probably end up going to end up loaning out to League One again. And do, Pomp- and do Pompey have those sorts of resources if they get promoted in that scenario? The type of player we need, someone who could pro- possibly fill in on one of the sides of the wings and up front, someone with a lot of pace, someone with good sense to move off the ball pretty well someone who's quite alert and lively out of possession and someone with a reasonable finish on them and someone who really who can do what bishop doesn't do which is move in between the center half and the fullback pacing dribbling high so somebody who's quite aggressive in that manner rather than a hold-up player i think so that's someone the sort of strike we need Someone who's skilled all of those attributes and also whose club don't want them in the January transfer window. That's a very... Well, so, yeah, someone who fits that mould, someone who could do those things. But in the Venn diagram role. We thought that Abu Kamara was raw and then he came in and has done pretty well. So, In the Venn diagram of availability, I think that's a very small central part of the Venn diagram. January's a difficult time, isn't it? To get of course. anyone I mean, that's going to set the world on fire. Because you're either taking someone who realistically has been injured and is looking for minutes, or you're looking for someone who hasn't been getting minutes, which is usually for a reason. So it's a very difficult time to bring in successful players. You look at players who I think wouldn't fit necessarily. You know, I saw some people online talking about Johnson Clark Harris, for instance, doesn't run the channels properly. I'm not really sure that's who you want. He's more of a penalty box striker. We've seen over the years how well those sort of strikers do at Pompey. Not that well, generally. I'm not sure if it would be different with the, sh- with the system we play, but not the kind of striker unless you want to bring in. You look at other strikers with good proven track records at this level. You know, Ipswich might be wanting to get rid of Freddie Ladapo. Again, not really the sort of striker I can see running the channels and doing what we need. So it's a different type of player. It's not necessarily has to have everything those players have or be you know, prolific in that sense in the penalty box, but it needs to be a player, I think, who's just more mobile and then and then can stretch defences. So I think that's maybe more what Fred's getting at. But Andy, definitely, it's not an easy thing to do, is it? And this is where we'll see how the management and the recruitment team, Rich Hughes' team, earn their paycheck in some ways. They've done well in the summer and I'm looking forward really to seeing how they can find those players. Yeah, they've nailed it so far, as far as I'm concerned. I've only got praise for them. And in terms of what Rich Hughes has done for the club so far, you know, you can see why he was so highly rated at Forest Green and why they were so gutted that he left. He's 
done really well. And his, uh, what was his Christmas update? I thought that interview, I don't think it got as much credit as it deserved. I don't think it was as widely spread as I thought it would be either. His, his Christmas interview ask, answering fan questions. I thought it was a fantastic interview. I thought his answers were excellent. And, you know, I'd love to be able to come on the podcast and be like, oh, here's what he said that I disagreed with. But every single one of his answers was reasoned, well thought out, evidenced. I mean, I'm guessing he'd seen the questions in advance, so he had a time to prepare for it. But he came across like everything was in control. We just needed the results on the pitch to follow. That's the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle because everything else is moving in the right direction as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, Josh's last point there was just to an upgrade on Schofield would be useful. Would be useful. I just think that's not where the squad's going to be and just the practicality of it. Dave Ryan messages in and says, backup keeper. We touched on that. New centre-back, new striker. At least that would cover if Norris, Shaughnessy or Bishop got injured. I mean, it's it's pretty, <clears throat> it's pretty good to have cover all over the pitch, I suppose, in that sense. A centre-back just has to come in, I still believe, because if we lose one of the two we got now, we really are stuffed with Paul out. I'll be interested just to know, Fred, if you think that that should be the priority first, a new centre-back, or if you feel if we could only, say, choose one player first, you had to order it, and which is the most important, you know, centre-back, winger, right-back, centre-forwards... You know, wh- where are your priorities? You know, if you're Rich Hughes and you're looking at juggling the wage budget, you know, where do you put these allocations of, of players, really? I think it has to be in the positions you've got less cover for, which at the moment, centre-half is a massive one. If Shortesy or Raggett drop, then that's going to be a major issue. So someone who is good enough to come in and be subbed on, if Pompey needs to be a bit more defensive, I think centre-half is the massive one, I think. Because even though... An explosive winger would be nice. Technically, we have cover there already with Martin, Scully and White. Obviously, there are arguments over if that cover is sufficient, but the fact that it's there in place already makes that position a slight less of need. I think up top and right back are pretty equal, really. Um, Maybe striker less so due to the fact that Yenge will come back from the Asian Cup at some point. He might get injured at that tournament, but we're not sure. But Rafferty being the only right back is actually a major concern given the injury update we had on Zach Swanson. So if you had to put a gun to my head and maybe order them, I think centre-half, top, backup right back, second, striker, third, winger, fourth, and then maybe to make it easier, you sign that third player who can be a winger and a striker or who can fill in. Uh, who, who has one preference but can fill in at the other. I put you on the spot there. Andy, do you agree with Fred? I do think the centre-back has to be the first priority. I'd like to think that we can give credit to the scouting team to be able to do two things at once, like rubbing their tummy and patting their head at the same time with a right and left hands. Uh, but I think if you're looking at the priority with pool out until the end of the season, I think you need to be looking centre-back and cover up top. Because if... Yangi's gone. Bishop gets injured. I, I don't. I genuinely don't really know who we're playing up top. Um, so yeah, I'd go probably even importance levels between number nine and defensive cover, or someone to play in number nine anyway. Bishop might be a bit fed up if we give him the number nine shirt. Don't think he's that pleased already. Based off what we talked about today, he might 
Might be the final nail in the coffin if we tell him that he's number 27 from now on. Changes squad number halfway through, halfway through the, season. the season. Breaking all league registration rules. Get the book thrown at us. John English measures it and he says, I guess most of us wanted to see at least one winger and a centre-back coming in. I haven't seen Schofield play, but hearing he was bad against the Dons. Do we need an understudy for Norris? I mean, maybe in the long term, but right now that's not happening, I don't think. Which players do you guys expect Pompey can bring in? I was just thinking, lads, we're talking about players coming in, but looking at the squad, are there any players in that squad that you wouldn't be surprised to see go out on loan to make room for those players coming in? Uh, on loan or permanent, probably... What, well, the main one's Denver Hume. If Massinho wants to move Lowry, I wouldn't be surprised. Or Stevenson, for that matter, due to the fact we've got a lot of midfielders, deeper midfielders, rather. But I think Hume is the only one that is realistically going to leave, I think. And I don't think Pompey will entertain bids for players unless it's absolutely absurd. And that's not from any background info. That's just my opinion, given where Pompey are on the table at the moment. Interesting with teams looking at strikers, isn't it? People are talking about Dion Charles maybe being poached from from Bolton. I mean, is that something that if Dion Charles is going to go, then those teams may be even interested in in Colby Bishop. I got this from um, Gabe Sutton was talking about it on Twitter. That's where the, the discords come from here, basically, conversation-wise. But I suppose the most valuable players you've got, which we actually own in that sense, you, you, they could be at risk. You know, we are a League One team. Championship teams could come in and spend money, but it'd have to be a silly amount of money, wouldn't it? And I see that... Gabe was saying something along the lines of maybe it'd be silly five million for Dion Charles. I think that would be, I don't think that's how much he's worth, but that's how much Bolton slapped a price tag on him. And, you know, they're saying you need to you know, spend five million in order to us to pick the phone up. I think if that sort of bid comes in for one of your players at five million, I think there there is a conversation to be had there, isn't there? And I think unfortunately, then you maybe you sell him. Do you think, do you think the club would sell him, Andy, at five million quid? I think they would. Depends on where you're at. In the transfer window, if it's deadline day, no, because you end up in that situation that Sunderland were in a few years ago, where you know when they were trying to sign Will Grigg, it was on that Sunderland till I die thing on Netflix, where they just called back and kept on adding zeros to their offer because they were so desperate to sign a striker before the end of the window, at like eleven fifty eight p.m. They're like, fine, give four million, forty million, four hundred million, whatever. So, yeah, Bolton aren't going to be stupid enough to put themselves in that position because they aren't a car crash of a club like Sunderland were at that point because Bolton have gone through their financial issues. They're not going to be irresponsible with it. I mean, that hypothetical, if you get offered £5 million for a player in League One, <laughs> it's like that thing, like, are you more scared of one duck the size of a dinosaur or a hundred dinosaurs the size of ducks. Like if they give you five million quid, do you go out and buy a five million quid player or do you go out and buy five one million quid players? It's not really a, an appropriate metaphor, but I've committed to it and I know you're not going to cut it out of the edit because you're a terrible human being, so I'm sticking with it. I, I'd be so surprised. I'd be stunned. The Bolton meltdown, I mean, it would be incredible, but um, their fan base, we actually get on with pretty well, but us three do anyway, so I probably would feel a bit bad for them, but... It's not, it's not going to happen, surely. Was that intel Gabe had, or was he just talking about it as a hypothetical? I'm guessing it's hypothetical. I didn't read into enough of it. I just thought it was interesting because it started a bit of a big conversation in Discord about it, but there is chatter about it. So mm. It's the sort of player that would go to 
a team that's trying to escape relegation from the championship, isn't it? It's sort of your Sheffield Wednesday kind of position, trying to bring in a goal scorer because you're struggling to score in the championship and taking a bit of a, a punt with a P uh, to be, yeah, to try and get some goals in to avoid relegation. But I mean, I I can't see that happening. Five million. What would you do with five million in the football club? Not not just in general, Hugh. You'd buy a load say, of weed. Yeah, Brady, what would you do with five million pounds? If you we're trying to keep this PG, um, it's not it's not a naughty word. It's legal in most countries. Well, in uh, countries, uh, with if sense. I had five million quid, I'd travel the world a lot. No, if you were uh, the, the football club, friend. <laughs> not a bucket oh, the football list. club um, with five million quid. Bigger pre-season tour, go somewhere more exciting. Probably, of, probably reinvest it in the squad and actually put money into the academy a little bit. That'd be nice, but. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next question quickly. Carl Allen, um, Carl Allen messaged in and he says, central defender, an Alfie May sort of forward and a pacey winger. We need players that can get in behind defenders. It's something I feel we severely lack in our squad. I understand the idea of someone getting in behind. We talked about stretching defences a minute ago with with wide players and, and with forwards as well, being able to do that. I mean, Alfie May isn't coming to us, but I know understandable sort of player. I'm not really that sure Alfie Mays is the sort of player I was thinking either. They've actually been playing him a little bit deeper as well, haven't they, re- recently, Charlton? So I'm not really sure he's uh, lead the line, stretch players in between. I don't know what you think about that comparison. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see a sign Alfie May, again, just for the absolute meltdown. If if Appleton sells Alfie May and then gets sacked, I don't know if Charlton could actually continue existing as a football club because I think someone might burn down the valley genuinely if they did that with the anger that they'd get from the fan base. But um, I mean, I rate Alfie May a lot. I, he's never coming to us, is he? Let's, it's, I know it's a name you've plucked out of thin air there, but honestly, I think if we're, if we're looking at cover for that position, firstly, Alfie May's not going to come here if he thinks he's being cover. Zero chance that's happening. And it's the sort of player that if, if they are going to be playing for Pompey, it's going to be because probably Bishop is injured because we, you know, Messino has shown that he doesn't love playing two up top. Although I thought it actually worked all right against Bristol Rovers for a bit. Although we did, I think we did it when we were one all and then we lost two one. So it didn't actually bear any fruit. But anyway, if he does, or if a player like that does come to Pompey, it's probably going to be getting minutes because Bishop's injured. So the main priority is, you know, poacher essentially. Uh, unless you are trying to get someone in purely to, because you are covering Yengi, in which case you're looking for a different kind of forward. I guess it depends what your priority is with bringing that player in or whether you're trying to just bring a bit of a stopgap in who can replace Yengi as an impact sub while Yengi is away, but also if Bishop gets injured, is going to be that poacher. But then we're back to that whole Venn diagram of being an incredible all-round striker and also not wanted by your current club. So... I haven't really answered your question there, have I? Why break the habit of a lifetime? <laughs> no, but we saw all good. Samuel meshes in and says, centre-back and a winger are a must. Ragget's doing good. If we can get another ball-playing centre-back on loan, I'd be happy. On loan is the one of the things I think can be difficult when, you've, when you're not trying to get starting players in. But at centre-back, there is a possibility, I suppose, there, Fred, that you could bring in a centre-back who can, who can pass and play the ball and could, you know conceivably come in and start at centre-back for us. Yeah, it's happened in January before with Pompey. If you remember Hayden Carter from Blackburn, that was an excellent January signing and did incredibly he well. Was, and it's now he was good, wasn't he, Hayden Carter? I rated him. Yeah, absolutely. And 
I think Jack Hancock and Joff Taylor both mentioned a player from Leicester who's in a slightly similar mould, Ben Nelson, who has also played at right back. So that's a little tweak there. But yeah, I think I think really at the centre half, it just depends on the best player. If it's a lone player, I don't mind that because really at this point, Pompey are going for obviously the division and promotion. So I don't mind in this case if it's a loan or a permanent. It just has to be the best player available, I think. And if it's a loan player, then so be it, really. Since the margins are so thin, I think this January has to be short, short, short term. So get the players, best players you can in those positions instead of just looking for a project that you think you might be able to re- re- rehabilitate in a season or two. Samuel uh, goes on to talk about he doesn't see Martin being extended. I, I sort of got this level that I think it's going to be dragged on until we see what's available. It's almost like a backup player to have in the squad rotation. I'm not sure he's done enough to maybe justify wowing us to be signed, but he also hasn't really flopped any worse than some of the other wide players who haven't been starting, as in Lane and Kamara, has he? He's pretty much on the same level as White and Scully for me in terms of performances. I don't think Josh Martin, I think Martin's a definitely a capable player at this level and there's no reason not to extend him until the end of the season if there's nobody out there who's better. But it's a shame that he hasn't hit the ground running, even though I'm not really surprised given the lack of proper preseason and stuff. So yeah, I think Massinho keeps Martin if he can't find anything better, really. Bobson Dugnut messes in and says, number one, keep extend Bishop. I can't see a contract being extended until the summer, depending on where Pompey are. That's most of my personal belief. At least one winger. Yeah, we discussed that. That's interesting. I see there's been a bit of a talk about people looking at Carl McAllister at Forest Green, 24 years old, left-footed winger. He's pretty much the only good creative player they've had so far this season. Don't know if it's just something maybe he's left-footed though, but prefers to play on the right. Is that good for us at the moment when basically most of our wingers want to play on the right-hand side as well? third one a forward ideally you can play nine or ten I mean a flexible player is not bad if they're going to fill in and be a squad player but it's not a player who is a ten but can't really play at a nine but could you know we don't want that situation again where we're playing Ryan Williams up front effectively like we had before or you know a winger who's not actually a striker at all but has played there once or twice in their lives it's not what we want really at this stage of the of the season when you're trying to get promoted so and then a ball playing centre back. I completely agree on that one. Off the cl- off the cuff, Ports are in and says Matt Ritchie and a centre back with championship experience. Think about it. Matt Ritchie's been mentioned more than once, boys. He's been mentioned over previous seasons as well. A couple of seasons ago, people were mentioning him as well. I I, I can't remember the last time I've seen him play. Really, though, to be honest. Andy, where's your inside information about Matt Ritchie? I was staying muted for a reason on that one. To be honest with you. It's not the sort of player I see British Hughes signing, to be honest. Mainly the age profile, really. Yeah, and the, the vibe I get from uh, from Hughes is it's look forward, not back. Sorry, my hamster's eating my raincoat. One sec. Yeah, no, I get that. Definitely look forward, not look backwards in that sense. Uh, Pompey8898 uh, meshes in and says, new settler back, Edmondson, get the profile. Might need to have a look at that again, although we'll be ecstatic. Pacey Winger, Blackett Taylor, is Appleton really going to do us a massive favour here? Is he going to be like, right, here we go, Alfie May, Blackett Taylor, shift him off the Pompey, I'm going to go out there and get Paul Benson in to replace him up front and some other 
nobody winger to sort of come in there as well. I mean, if Blackatella is available, you obviously sign him because I also think he'll probably, he's capable of playing in the championship as well, given his track record at Charlton. But there's no way on earth he's going to be available, surely. I can't see it at all. But, you know, good suggestions in that sense. Um, Daniel Edmonds messes in and says, pace and a centre-back. When we talk, I mean, when we talk about pace here, are we just thinking about up front as well? I mean, the wingers aren't all slow. I mean, Paddy Lane's not exactly rapid, rapid, is he? But obviously brings a lot more. Not slow, but he's not necessarily rapid. Scully's not that quick, I suppose, in the same level. Kamara's got some pace, but I don't know if people want a bit more of a direct running winger as well. Do you think we need more pace out wide, boys, and up front? Is that something that we should be looking at as one of the key attributes for this team? I'd rather have end product than pace. We've had players in the past with decent pace and no end product, really. Um, again, you mentioned Ryan Williams there. Pace isn't everything if you've got nothing at the end of it. And it's been a big critique of it's been a big critique of our players over the last couple of years, especially playing on the wings, that the end product hasn't been there. And they still contributed to the team by, you know, being able to get past a man. They just couldn't do anything once they got past the man. So for me, end product is more important. It's not like we are a slow team, are we? It's not as if Kamara and Lane are slow players. They're not setting the world alight with their pace. But, I mean, Kamara, uh, the, was it his third chance that he, he missed at the weekend, which was a, a shanked goal kick from the Stevenage keeper? I think it was the third one. The second one. The second one, was it? But his ability there to take that down and get free of their centre-back while controlling the ball himself, he did that and got into a position where he should have scored. So it's not as if he's a slow player. It's not like we've got a team of, you know, London buses and Titanics with the turning circle of, you know, Paul Downing. We're not really, really struggling in that sense here. It's not an emergency. Pace is great, but if you're looking at other players at the moment who you'd say don't have that pace, but they do have the end product, you know, players like Sparks, for example, you wouldn't say he's the quickest player in the world, but his ball in is to die for. I'd rather have that any day of the week at the moment than a, a Ryan Williams style sprinting around and not really doing anything at the end of it. Can we just say that I'm reveling in the fact that my best mate in the world, Paul Downing, has sort of come back like a bad virus after... You for years wanting to get rid of the man, but it's great to have another mention on the podcast. Let's get a hashtag on the episode for that reason. Uh, James messaged it and he asked this question. He said, Do you think we need to sign a loan right back as Swanson's out for a few months? James, hopefully, we answered that question earlier on. A loan might be difficult when you've got Rafferty, who is a starting right back already, and another player coming back in March. So I've got a feeling that's probably more likely to be a permanent deal if you're going to get a right back to play there. If, I'm guessing you guys agree with that. Give us a nod if you do, and I'll move on. Yeah, Fred agrees with that as well. And Andy's sort of chasing his hamster well, around no, his bedroom. I genuinely lost my hamster during that last thing I was talking about. She went behind me. She is gone. I'm going to mute and try and find where she's gone. She heard about Paul Downing and just bolted, basically. She's had enough of that. She was like, Gina was like, nope, Paul Downing. All right, he's back. <laughs> back now. Um, anyway, just moving on quickly. Richard Sterling meshed in. He says, injuries to Bolton, probably. Is what we need. Surprise, surprise. He's a he's a Bolton fan. So would, would, would be very good. Uh, top top, top um, thing in January. Yeah, if he's exactly. saying he wants injuries to Bolton, surely he's not a Bolton fan. 
But no, he's, he's actually just saying, what is Pompey's biggest need in January? That is the exact question. And he's put injuries to Bolton. I mean, as a Pompey the- fan, I'd say that that would definitely help us. So, Yeah, all I can say is, Richard, let's, let's will to make that happen then. Thank you for that input. And if it does happen, I'll be reaching out to you to thank you in person. The MLP meshes in and says, a backup keeper, a defender, a striker. I think we've covered it, boys. Yeah, I think we've covered it. It's going to go on more as we look to sign players in January, etc. I'm going to go into more detail on this as the season progresses. But I think for now, we've got quite a good scope there, boys, on what we think we should be doing at the start of the month. All right, let's move on. We spoke to Owen from the Robins Report to talk about everything we want to know about the game on Saturday. I managed to get Owen on the podcast just before the dart started. He wasn't chained to his microphone like the two boys here are instead of watching the darts. Well, sort of with Andy. He's he's definitely watching the darts at the same time. I've paid excellent attention to this podcast. Thank you very much. (laughs) We spoke about Cheltenham. Obviously, we spoke about Daryl Clark with how he's, the changes he's made, how he's managed to turn Cheltenham around from an absolutely sort of impotent attacking force to a team who are much harder to play against, sort of more aggressive, up-tempo, big changes happening with them over January and a lot more. So here's Owen from the Robins Report. All right, I'm here with Owen from the Robins Report. And Owen, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hope you're doing well. Uh, hi in League One. Yeah, we're not doing bad, are we? So we just recorded this before darts. So we're making sure that you can go and watch it. Freddie's not allowed. Andy, Andy's claiming that he's got two screens on the go. So... Listeners, you make up your mind earlier on in the podcast if you think that Andy's been concentrating on. But let's focus on Cheltenham here because it was obviously quite a quite a bad start to the season for you guys. Apart from down at Fratton Park, we managed <laughs> to get a point, even though he didn't score. And then Daryl Clark comes in. He's a manager that you know I rated at Port Vale generally and at, and at Bristol Rovers. So what's he done to turn your season around? And you know, you're actually looking like a much better team, aren't you? Yeah, massively. Um Daryl Clark came in when we only had one point. And as you said, that one point came from Fratton Park. Uh, we gave decided to give the league an 11-game head start, which was uh, very kind of us, um, and hadn't scored a goal. And he just he, he had those little goals which he, he needed to hit first. He had to get that first goal in the league, which was the first milestone. Then it was like it was the first win of the season, which eventually came and it all came in quite quick succession. I think generally with any manager, you get that managerial bounce in that honeymoon period um and you know what you're gonna get with Daryl Clark and he makes no bones about it what he expects and he just gave the whole atmosphere at the club a general lift uh the expectations went up tenfold it's not to say that the players weren't really trying underway Daly it just needed a big freshen up it needed that bit of experience and a manager who's kind of been there and done it and that's kind of that's transpired to, to kind of the rest of the squad are there any been any players specifically who have stepped up since Daryl Clark came in, or is it purely a motivational or tactical thing that's changed it around? Um, it's hard to say. I would generally all of them. There's there's ten percent more from every single player. Um, there was high hopes for a player like Will Goodwin. He would come in under Wade Elliott. Uh, Wade Elliott spoke of him very highly. Got injured at the start of the season. Last season was kind of thrown in at the deep end, but. Never really seen that quality, um, but since since Daryl Clark's came in, he has really stepped up. He's been kind of the goal scorer, which we weren't really expecting. We just expected him to be kind of a development 
developmental player. Uh, and he's also brought in one signing with him uh, as free agent Tom Pett, who he's completely revolutionised our midfield. Um, the fact he was without a club, I know he had had offers, but he was waiting on the right club. And Daryl Clark going back into management was the right move for him. And he's been unbelievable. He's one of the, I'm not going to push it and say he's one of the best midfielders in the league, but the, the difference he's made to our midfield and how he complements the rest of our team is it's, it's, it's great. It's been really good. To give sort of an idea for Pompey fans of, you know, something positive for our side of things, in the games where it hasn't gone to plan in the recent past, so I guess I'm talking about you doing the opposite to most teams in the league and throwing away a two-goal lead against Reading instead of giving them two goals and then coming back to beat them, or uh, the game, say, late in Orient where you were down to 10 men fairly early on. What's gone wrong in the games that you've not picked up points? Because um, I think form table... But purely at the second half, for example, I think you're like second or third bottom in the form table for like the second half isolated yeah. and you're a lot better in the first half. So like what goes wrong in that second half in these games where you're not picking up points? It's really it's really difficult because obviously, as you said, Leighton Orient, we were down to 10 men for a large portion of that match. I think Leighton Orient didn't offer a lot, but unfortunately what they decided to offer was in like the last five minutes of the game, which and at that point we were dead on our feet. Reading was a complete capitulation. What's changed is our, our our intensity from the first whistle is really high. So the expectation on fitness is is great, and and but that's like from minute zero to minute ninety. And I think even Reading, we were two 0 up, played the best football of the season, and got to the forty minute mark, and we were still like a hundred miles an hour, where we just needed to be like, whoa, let's calm down a bit, let's get through to half time. Reading are a team of quality players. There's just that little bit of naivety. In, I don't want to say lack of quality, it's just a mentality, which I think we have being a team who's been kind of in the relegation zone for all of the season. We've still got that bit of mentality and that's a little bit of naivety when it comes to games in not in not seeing games out. We managed it against Carlisle, but even Northampton, which is making really silly mistakes. Um, and, and they're costing us, unfortunately. Our luck hasn't really seemed to drop greatly for us um, this season at all. And that's kind of a reason part of the reason why we are where we are when you're down at the bottom in the bottom four it feels like you're never really going to get that luck and at times it definitely has felt like that especially over the last few games where we've dropped dropped points oh and you spoke about intensity there i remember when you came down to fratton park you sat very deep in that game and has daryl clark then come in and changed how you play out of possession is he has he done it to, to a level that you, you're pressing more or is it more of the same and then sort of quick you know quick sort of direct attacks against opposition yeah, definitely. Wade Elliott was very much a cautious manager. He would, he he liked the game at nil nil. Like if we could just sit back, be really solid in defence, and see a game through to nil nil, we were doing just fine. Daryl Clark's changed that completely. He wants to be on the one. Whilst we're not going to dominate possession, he wants us to be in in opposition's faces and either causing a mistake or basically just getting the ball up there as quickly as possible. But we've got really adapt strikers you know you'll probably, you'll probably see George Lloyd on Saturday the kid's under six foot but he'll probably compete and win over 50% of the aerial duels against your defenders and I know you probably have got class defenders but his aerial ability is, is ridiculous he's, he's a he was a gymnast when he was younger and it, it really shows he's one of the smallest players on the pitch and and wins a lot but yeah definitely the intensity is is gone up um which again, does lead lead to a downfall at times because we can be so high up the pitch that it's easy to counter us, especially on the wings, 
because we still play a three back and, and wing back system, uh, that's probably where where teams can get in at us uh, on the wings when we're getting too high. Do you think Cheltenham have the players to be more adventurous out of possession? Is the pressing working, or is it led to too many mistakes? No, I don't think it's led to. It's not that it's led to too many mistakes. It's just one of those easy things. We, it's not getting ahead of ourselves. It is just the way we play, and it's the risk we've got to take. We've got to be going into games and get as many points. And Daryl Clark said it against uh, post Northampton, he was really, really angry with the result because he felt it was three points dropped. But it's just we're trying to go for games so much. We've got twenty points already at this stage. He wasn't expecting. Now I know Pompey got like twenty five points at home this season, but um, it's just it's it's one of them. We're doing all we can at the moment, and we've got to. We can't stand off. We can't just be playing out for draws now we've got to by any means necessary be going for wins and really putting opposition under pressure and I think a lot of opposition fans and teams have have noticed they're not going to get an easy game against Cheltenham anymore it's not they're not going to be in the driver's seat what are expectations now from a a Cheltenham point of view then if obviously after seven or eight games of the season I'm assuming there was a certain level of resignation that there certainly won't be now but if you look at other teams in the league and I mean I Fleetwood their form isn't suggesting that they're really going to turn anything around unless Charlie Adam does something spectacular. There are a lot of teams down there who seem to be on a bit of a downward trajectory. So, you know, teams like Exeter can't pick up a well too many points wherever they go at the moment. Uh, what's the expectation for you guys? Is it now, based on the last 12 games, you think you're going to be fine? Or is there still a bit of nervousness in there based off how, how much can change over the course of 22 games? There's certainly a lot more hope that we can stay up over these since since Daryl Clark's taken over. I think the lucky lucky thing, for, I wouldn't call it lucky, but because of our dreadful start to the season, it, we were lucky it happened right at the start of the season. So we've had that time to kind of build up, bring a new manager in, get his ideas through. We, and if we were at a point where the the drop between us and the dotted line wasn't too too huge, so we could claw back the points, um, which we've managed to do. I still. You know, December was a huge month for us in terms of some of the sites we were playing, Carlisle, Shrewsbury, um, Leighton Orient, and we're now going into Pompey, Bolton and Derby. So we know we've got we've got the difficult sides to play and it's it's how we're gonna do. I'm not naive to say we're definitely gonna stay up. That's obviously it's gonna be a huge success if we can stay up. We've not done four seasons. We've not done above four seasons in League One before. Uh, this is our third season in League One, so that'll be history made if we stay up. Um, we've given ourselves a huge battle to do it with, but we've got ourselves back amongst the pack. So if we can beat those teams around us, we've still got to play Burton twice. We've still got to play Wickham twice. So getting those results against the teams and, and keeping ourselves amongst that pack is going to be the main thing. And I think there's a lot of teams in those kind of bottom bottom parts of the table um, you really start to see the league split a bit now probably between maybe ninth, eighth, probably eighth and above so yeah it's keeping ourselves amongst that I mean we spoke about you know the changes in Daryl Clark and he's sort of done well because he's basically kept the, you know the same players and turned it around apart from the one addition you spoke about but I've just seen you've let six loan players go in January so do you feel that the club and the board are going to back him to bring in players to sort of turn this around and almost have a slightly different squad and a different look, you know, by the the end of January. Uh, I think something come out on Twitter about the the wage budgets of the teams, and we knew we were going to be bottom of that. And to get rid of a manager, pay the comp, pay pay off a manager, bring a new manager like Daryl Clark in, 
the budget was well and truly gone. But the problem in the summer is with with loans. Loans have been probably our best thing of the past three seasons, four, five seasons, even back into League Two. Um, this season, they were just so far off off our, our usual standard loans. Owen Bevan was the only really good one we had on loan for Bournemouth, but unfortunately he got an injury, which means he probably won't come back. But it was a lot of first-time loans, which we didn't normally tend to go for. Um, so Clark's been very clear that he wants, you know, a lot of the loans haven't featured. There's a lot of kind of fringe players. We had a squad of 30 when Daryl Clark came in. We've now got 19 and a club like Cheltenham, we can't be carrying 30 players. We need experience. We need to use the wage budget really wisely. So now all all of those loan players are pretty much off the books. Uh, we've sent another few professionals out on on loans to National League and League of Ireland. It's given us a bit of the budget. And he, he, he says he wants to make about three or four additions. Tom Pett's extended his contract at the end of the season. But three or four experienced additions, uh, which isn't going to be easy. But I think we've got the Daryl Clark pull a little bit now. So that's 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 where our January is going to look. But we're always down the bottom of the pecking order with that. So it's going to have to be patient January as per usual. Oh, and I promised to let you off at eight o'clock. So we're getting right to that time now. <laughs> and as my job as host, I feel morally obliged to help you out here. So let's wrap this up and say, can you please give me a score prediction for the game uh, on Saturday and any goal scorers? So we recorded our pod last night and as the pod was going on, I was getting ever increasingly more confident, which is such a stupid thing to do going in. We we don't seem to fare brilliantly against Pompey at home, but we don't always tend to do really bad. I think they've only won once or twice at Auden Road. Um, and I'm not going to say Pompey had hit a bit of a sticky patch, but they'd certainly hit a sticky patch for themselves uh, recently. So I went bold and I've gone for a 2-1 score i'm gonna go for i'm gonna go for goodwin and circum because circum's been firing for cheltenham at the minute and i always say smile on packs i mean we've got quite a few old cheltenham players returning with jay morrell and marlon pack i think marlon pack will probably bang one in because he's bound to we always say it with ex-players yeah we do the same and it actually happens against the sun you know against <laughs> stevenage already with louis thompson get getting a goal but owen thanks for on the pod mate why don't you let people know where they can find you your podcast Brilliant. Um, so we're on Spotify. We do Robin's Report pod, the Robin's Report podcast. You can find us on Twitter, uh, and yeah, just just those usual channels. We have a weekly pod each time. Amazing. And as always, mate. Good luck for the rest of the season. Hope you guys stay up apart from this weekend. Thanks very much. Cheers for having me, Jensen. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Enjoy the darts. Thanks, Owen, from the podcast. Boys, I've got through this much of the episode. My voice is slightly dying now as we go on to it. So I'm going to try and like hold it together for the last bit and maybe delegate some of these questions. But there's quite a lot of interesting stuff there, wasn't there, Randy, from what Owen said regarding how Cheltenham are changing their style, the sort of the restrictions they have a club, I suppose, budgetary-wise, and how they're looking to sort of reconfigure their budget. I suppose as well as that, maybe they're sort of a little bit in this transition stage now. Now I said, I know you said that a lot of these lone players weren't starting. There's not like they've released six of them. It's gutted the starting lineup or anything, but this might be a team that's still sort of in a rebuild over January. And maybe we can take advantage of that. Yeah. I mean, our matchup against them wasn't fantastic earlier in the season. We were their only point for about the first, what, nine games of the season or something along those lines, first seven games of the season, something like that. And you say they're a team in transition, but that's, you know, very much off the pitch the case. On the pitch, they seem to be on an upward trajectory as the season's progressed. 
I think they're, they're in the form table, they're sort of eleventh or twelfth. I think overall in the last ten to twelve games. So, just as, at the moment, they are a solid League One time. At the moment, they are a solid League One side, and Daryl Clark has set them up to be extremely hard to beat. I think in our our League One chat from the last week, it was the Northampton uh, Danny, wasn't it? North uh, the Northampton fan saying that they were sort of. Quite not not lucky, but Northampton did really well to get away with a win against them in their last time out. It's not a gimme by any stretch of the imagination. I think they're a very different team to the one that we played towards the start of the season. Um, hopefully, having said that, we can take advantage of you know, the momentum that we got from that Stevenage game. It's going to be a very different game, you'd imagine, in terms of how Cheltenham are going to line up. That three at the back that we struggled with against Blackpool, but have done better with since then. I mean, in the Bolton game, for example... We looked a lot more solid playing against three at the back there. So, yeah, we'll see if we've uh, continued to learn our lessons, I guess. But you say, you know, we're top of the table. It's It needs to be three points, doesn't it? And that's not me saying we will and we, you know, we could even lose the game. It's not beyond the realms of possibility or likelihood. But it is one of those games where, you know, if you're seeing Bolton playing Cheltenham on a Saturday where we've got a different game, your assumption is that Bolton are going to pick up three points from that match. And therefore, we need to be doing it as well. It's um, it's not a must win. It's not going to make or break the season, I wouldn't think. But it's the sort of game we need to be getting three points from because the teams around us are going to be getting three points from it more often than not. Freddie, what are you thinking in terms of um, what Pompey need to do to pick up the points on Saturday against a, a pretty resurgent Cheltenham side? I think the biggest thing that came up from our conversation was the... Um, Cheltenham being more aggressive off the ball. It looks as if they're going to be aggressive in the press when Pompey have possession. So the most important thing is to effectively beat the press and when attacking players in possession have a lot of space, be able to exploit that space and create those chances. That's where the game's going to be run, I think, when Pompey are in possession dealing with that press. They have to be efficient enough to be able to exploit the gaps without making themselves vulnerable to counter-attacks. So no, Pompian possession, dealing with a pressing side is going to be the main thing in this next match. There are also quite a few teams that aren't playing this weekend. I know, for instance, Andy Bolton aren't playing this weekend. I mean, they've got the, the FA Cup third round on the 7th of January. Oh, who wants to play in that? But I don't think they've got their playing this weekend. So there is an opportunity here that we don't want to be two games in hand with Bolton and still on the same level of points. How important do you think things like momentum are in that sense, that sort of mentality and momentum? I know we, we look at a lot of stuff with data and sort of, you know, player profiles and stuff, but is there something to say from a squad confidence level that banking the three points before the other teams around you play and stretching that lead a little bit really can help propel you forward for the rest of the games? Yes, yeah, runs on the board, isn't it? It's like, you know, in a big cricket game, big World Cup final, you want to bat first, get runs on the board. You'd rather have the points on the board rather than, you know, being two games behind. Sorry, rather than being two games in hand, five points behind. You're in this division, you're not guaranteed to win any game. It's a very, very difficult to uh, very, very difficult division to predict. There's a reason that our accumulators come in so rarely because there's normally one or two surprising results every single week in the division. So, yes, confidence and... What's the word I'm looking for? Confidence and momentum 
are both extremely important. But you want to, you know, I'd rather be in our position with points on the board, assuming we pick up three points at the weekend against Cheltenham. As a Bolton fan, if you're looking at that and seeing us put out a five-point gap, even if they have got two games in hand, I still really like being in our position. You'd rather have the points on the board, surely, Fred? Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to rely on other teams doing the job for you, in a sense, by slipping up. And we've seen how key momentum is over past seasons in League One. We've seen Barnsley go from nowhere with the momentum all the way into playoffs and get promoted to the Championship. He's seen Luton spring up with that momentum and stay top of the league for ages and almost run away with it in the end. And Ipswich, that, that momentum just continued throughout the entire of last season. So it's so Plymouth as well. So no, but it's key. It has to be. You, you, you have to results build on each other. We saw in that little rough patch earlier that bad results bred bad habits and it works exactly the same way the other way around. All right, boys, let's wrap this up. I want to know your score predictions, please. Andy Mitchamore for the game on Saturday and any goal scorers. 2-0 win, Bishop Brace. Hopefully no more ear cupping needed for me. Freddie, how about yourself? I'm going to go with a 2-1 Pompey win. I'm going to go with Paddy Lane and Abu Kamara getting the goals for Pompey. And I'm going to go with for Cheltenham. I'm going to go with Goodwin. Who's got their six goals? I think it, I think he'll continue to get another one. Did you just choose their top goal scorer, Freddie? Uh, yes, I don't know about go. Cheltenham, to be honest. That's the high-level analysis. I've got a lot of time for it. Since Alfie May left, they're quite hard to do um, player profiles on. Hugh, who are you going with as goal scorers and what is your prediction, bud? I also thought about two now, but to be a little bit different here, I'm going to go three now. Robertson, Kamara, Shaughnessy. I like Three it. now. I like it. Thanks for the podcast, Andy. Always a pleasure, mate. Looking forward to Cheltenham on Saturday. Another three points in the bag. Let's all just be really nice to each other on social media, shall we? And stop fighting in comments chains. And that's not necessarily directed specifically at the three of us. But uh, support the team, eh? Brady Webb, always a pleasure. Oh, lovely to have the podcast going again in 2024. And... Uh... Yeah, fingers crossed for the three points tonight. And uh, yeah, I'm going to go and watch it, enjoy this darts final now. Exactly. Oh, it's finished, Freddie. I mean, it hasn't, has it? But there we go. No, are. no, it hasn't. <laughs> but your face was briefly, briefly disappointed. And until next time, play up pumping. You have been listening to the PO Forecast for Pompey News Now. Available on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow PO Forecast and Pompey News Now on Twitter for more information. And there is the full-time whistle!